It is good to be together in the house of the Lord, learning from God's word how we can look at our life through a godly lens, a lens of love, a lens of grace and care, and and a lens of transformation as well. And I think that's what the story of Job is about. It is one of these stories in the Bible where you have to be ready to get your theological fingernails dirty with the grittiness and the earthiness of what's going on in the text. And so we dive in and we struggle and we wrestle. And I love the way that Martha invited us into prayer to think about our own struggles and burdens and challenges. Now by way of context, today is the first book in our next series of five books. These books of poetry and wisdom are at the heart of the Hebrew Bible. And with 17 books of history and law coming beforehand, and the 17 books of major and minor prophets in the Old Testament following. And even though we've only reached the 18th book in our journey through, the 66 in all of the New Testament and Old Testament, the Bible, week by week, in some ways, we've reached a kind of midpoint, in terms of volume at least. For instance, Psalms, next week's book, a source of many beloved songs and scriptures, and how many of us can say Psalm 23 by heart, or are familiar with other places that we go for refuge and for strength. Psalms is in the middle of the entire Christian Bible, with Psalm 118 being in the very center, and bookended by the shortest and the longest chapters in the Bible. Some scholars estimate that about today's book, Job, it's the oldest written portion of our Bible, and the literature is estimated back to a date of 1900 B.C., which is some 500 years before the Pentateuch was written. You have the books of Moses, those first five books, and those are in the 1400s B.C., so if you can imagine, 1900 B.C., that's a pretty old book of the Bible. Yet, it has never lost its contemporary application or its sense of connectivity. It's with us here today. We can learn from it. We can study it. Theologian and biblical historian Walter Brueggemann gives us this tantalizing introduction to Job's story. The book of Job and its three parts of narrative, poetry, narrative, is a daring, majestic fugue, I love that musical term, that renders theological trouble and submissiveness in all of its immense complexity. The whole of the drama is to be fully appreciated in its inexhaustible artistry and not interpreted so that it is made to conform to any of our ready-made theological packages. That's a lot to unfold, a lot to unpack. But it doesn't fit narrowly into any of, any of our views. We have to come together as a community, just as Job and his friends did, to understand this book. What would you do? How would you respond if you heard this news headline? Fortune 500 mogul and billionaire philanthropist Job Eastland, whose exploits of generosity have become legendary in a world huddled around Wall Street, lost everything in a day. Eastland had just given a $10 million donation to Habitat for Humanity, apologizing that it couldn't be more this year due to an uncertain economy, and followed up that gift with the charitable $50 million toward the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Days later, Job's ten children, who were together on a medical missions flight over Ecuador on their way back to the Amazon rainforest, were lost when their plane tragically crashed with none surviving. Job's financial holdings were wiped out in a sudden dramatic series of events beyond his control, and his business, which consisted of a workforce of 3,000, have all been put on indefinite unpaid leave, while at the same time suffering 100% COVID exposure. So how might you respond to that headline? How would you react to that kind of news? Would it send tingles up your spine? Would you be aghast? Would you hold your hand over your mouth? Would you feel pity for Job who went from riches to relatively nothing virtually overnight? 
Overcome with empathy, would you feel deep regret and remorse at his sudden change of fortune? Would you wonder who now stood to receive the inheritance that was going to be very large, if indeed there was anything left, the legacy of a wealthy, generous force for good? Or perhaps somewhere in your heart, would you feel that the weights had been balanced in your favor, that the universe had somehow made restitution and the world had tilted back toward equilibrium of shared goods? Or, beyond questions of right and wrong, would you stop and ask, why did all of these terrible things happen to such a good, undeserving person? Well, if so, that gives you a little bit of a flavor for Job and how his friends and the hearers of the story would have experienced his news Obviously, the story that I just shared with you was a metaphor. It didn't actually happen. You won't find that headline out there. But it invites us to engage the Hebrew Bible through a current lens. And if you ask that last question, why, you wouldn't be alone. For millennia, the question, if God is so good, then why do bad things still happen, especially to good people? That question has perennially piqued people of faith who have probed for answers, looking for logic, reason, or rhyme to suffering. Philosophers and theologians have wrestled with such reoccurring tragedies, wondering why difficult things happen to good people. They've even given the topic a name, theodicy, the problem of evil. In our series of wisdom and literature books entitled, How Do I Live Wisely? The predominant theme is that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. The very first book, however, Job, through didactic disputation between Job and his friends and even the Almighty, and Job's lived own experience challenges this notion that good comes to those who do good and punishment comes to those who do evil. Think of that. Job is a prime example of how very difficult things sometimes happen to very good people. While theodicy and its articulation may help us to frame the, the question, it may be far more elusive to find a meaningful answer to that question. The language of praise and lament, as we will see in Psalms and in later books, like Lamentations and Ecclesiastes, are two scriptural reactions to hardships. In my experience, everyone is caught up at some point in life's difficulties, and they want to know how to live wisely and avoid those challenges, and whether it comes as a result of their own decisions or simple circumstance. For some, when they make the decision to follow Jesus, there's this expectation that they imagine all the troubles of life will be fixed. Jesus has overcome the world, right? And we overcome through him, which is true. But we still have challenges to face. And troubles are inevitable. Job is no exception. Despite his good faith and his wise living, his righteous nature doesn't save him from life's trials. Rather, in this case, it seems his good reputation is the very basis for these difficult things happening to him. But still, the big question remains, why? Why did Job have to go through all those trials? What was the point? Did they make his faith stronger? And if that was the point, couldn't that have been accomplished in some other way? So many more questions stem from that central question of why. What was God up to in the midst of this book? In fact, after 40 chapters of conversation with his companions, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, along with a surprise interruption by Elihu, Job himself comes around to this question. And God has an answer. More questions! Our men's Monday morning Bible study group wrestled through those questions as they studied Job last year. Did you ever find that to be the case in your life? You're looking to ease the ambiguity just a bit, wonder what God is up to. Can I add a smidgen of clarity, something to hold on to, some real estate to claim as your own 
And instead, all you get is an invitation to keep searching, keep trying, dig deeper. Rather than seek with the multitudes to answer the question why evil exists in the world, let's try a different approach. Let's ask what Job learned from his difficulties and what we can learn with him. Another wisdom literature book, Proverbs, shares, A good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. That's Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When the story began, Job had both a good name and great riches. He was the wealthiest, most prosperous person in the land. However, shortly after he lost his riches and his body was afflicted by illness, even his good name came into question under the scrutinizing gaze of trusted peers. Will Rogers once said, You got this sort of give and take in this old world. We can get mighty rich, but if we haven't got any friends, we will find out we are poorer than anybody. Well, part of Job's problem was his friends, who presumed and spoke out against the guilt that they perceived in Job. Job would have to have had patience when surrounded for days on end by friends who were convinced from the outset that he was guilty until proven innocent. He had earned that good name. Had he earned all that he had? For nothing, they may have been wondering. No doubt he had engaged in some illicit, underhanded dealings that blessed Job with extravagant wealth. They knew he must have done something to deserve all this pain and suffering, even if they couldn't see it. That divine punishment was warranted for his wayward ways. That some unconfessed sin had brought about this great calamity in Job's life. In the New Testament letter of James, we learn about one of the lasting attributes of Job, patience. James chapter 5, verses 10 through 11 reads, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's patience, his perseverance, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. More about what the Lord finally brought about for Job in just a moment as we get back to the text. But don't you think patience is an awfully high price to pay for all that Job had to endure? When you hear about what Martha read, the loss of children, personal property, the trust of those closest to him in life, including his wife and his friends, yet patience was not the outcome, I would submit to you, of Job's trials. It was the means by which he weathered those storms and how he managed to survive such unbearably difficult circumstances. Job's patience and perseverance were both a result of his burdens and a means to his blessing. Job knew that all the calamities that befell him were well beyond his control. He saw how powerless he was in the face of overwhelming supernatural forces, yet it was his unwavering trust in God's goodness that was his anchor through the midst of that storm in the end. What were Job's burdens and blessings, you may be asking yourself? Well, here are three for us to consider today. His faith, his fortune, his friends. I try to keep them all in alphabetical order for you, all F. Faith, fortune, and friends. Job's faith in a system, an ethical framework that rewards people for doing good and punishes them for doing wrong, becomes in fact a burden. Although it was the established traditional theology of Moses, Deuteronomy, and Sinai, God's relationship with covenant and the people in the wilderness, this is the concept of retribution being repaid for what you have done, or blessings and curses as it's known then, a way of understanding God in the world that would have been well known to God's people, the people of the Near East, it leaves little room for grace or mercy. Job's unwavering faith in God, however, is a blessing that carries him through impossible difficulties and opposition 
from close friends. Job's faith. Job's enormous fortune is an equally enormous burden precisely at the point at which he loses everything. His fortune becomes a blessing when it's restored and multiplied toward the end of the story. Job's fortune. And Job's friends, meant to be of comfort, become a burden when they become convinced of his guilt. Job has the opportunity to extend a blessing to them and to himself be blessed after he prays for them. Job's fortune. When you think of it, through all the heavy circumstances Job endured, it must have been a burden to persevere and keep his patience with his faith, his fortune, and finally, his friends. But the very patience and perseverance that were born in adversity and cultivated by godly character and values were in and of themselves an immense blessing. So the burdens and blessings of Job are a reminder, a telling reminder to all of us of the value of persistence and would have benefited but briefly without the lasting lessons of his patience and perseverance. I know that sentence is a mouthful, so I'll say it one more time. The burdens and blessings of Job are a telling reminder to us all of the value of persistence and patience and would have benefited but briefly if not for the lasting lessons of his patience and perseverance. So I want to ask you, how deep is your faith? Would you say that you have the patience of Job? For heaven's sake, don't pray for it or you may get what you asked for. Instead, I encourage you to fully lean into the abundant, unending love of God. Martha read for us today from the prologue and the epilogue of Job. In the prologue, we get a glimpse of the immensity of what Job is facing. We have the cause. The rippling effects are felt all throughout the biblical narrative. Instead of waving a white flag of surrender, Job put on the clothes and the garments of praise. He insisted on honoring God, not giving up on his faith, and clung to his own innocence for dear life. And it isn't until the epilogue that we finally have a fuller picture, and all of this pays off for Job. So let's listen together to the end of the story from Job 42, verses 10 through 17. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man full of years. Let's see, I'm 40, 40, 80, 120, 140, I, I've got a ways to go. As for the inheritance, not only did Job's sons stand to receive legacy gifts, but his daughters did as well. I think that's worth noting. In an ancient Near Eastern culture where this was far from commonplace, Job's descendants benefited both from his presence during their lifetime and the love that continued well after his death. It had begun to seem that only the Almighty would come to Job's defense. After all the trials, the hardships, the loss, God asked Job to perform one more Herculean task of praying for those very friends who had opposed him and become such bitter companions, those who, having been quick to come to his comfort, turned and became his chief critics. 
But while scholars may not be able to tell us when the book of Job was written exactly, just who Job was or where he lived, it's kind of general in terms of in the land, or what di why difficult things happen in our lives, perhaps one of the greatest lessons that we can learn is that of perseverance. That if we don't give up, blessings will come. This would have been an invaluable reminder for the community of Israel during a time of exile when they were asking the question of what they had done as God's chosen people to deserve all this difficulty, pain, and suffering. And of course, that came years and centuries later. Jesus shares this concept in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, a group of teachings that some of the adults are studying on Sunday mornings in the section we know as the Beatitudes. Blessed or happy are those who mourn or hunger or thirst or are meek, or are merciful, or who make peace, or are pure in heart, or are persecuted. I think we might have a slide for this. We, yeah, there it is. Because their end shall be greater than what they now experience. In the realm of philosophy, such an outlook as this that Jesus teaches would have been called teleology, with the Greek word telos meaning an end, a purpose, or an outcome. Perhaps you're familiar with the phrase, the end justifies the means. It would appear that this is the case for Job. That because he was blessed in the end, because his friends were forgiven, and because his family was restored, all the difficulty and all the despair and heartache that he experienced was somehow justified. I want to posit another view. That in the end, his strength, wisdom, and godly character redeemed all that sadness and loss. Job never forgot the pain of losing his ten children. Nothing could replace them, not even ten more beautiful and wonderful children even when he looked at his new family growing and having their own families. Have you ever known anyone who was incredibly kind and loving, even when life dealt them a very difficult hand? How circumstances can make a person either bitter with what they face or build character toward sainthood. They seldom leave us the same. One of the blessings of Job is that we can still, today, learn from his perseverance and apply that mindset to our own lives. So friends, I want to encourage us to take heart in the midst of difficulties. It would be hard to imagine a more tragic situation than the one Job faced. Yet I know we all have our own hardships that are impossible to bear. So we're invited to leave them at the feet of Jesus. To have them transformed from obstacles into open doors. From shackles that bind into a framework for blessing. Job had many burdens that were much too much. Far too difficult for him to bear. He looked to the Lord who sustained him and in the end poured out blessings. And even though things were never the same for him, perhaps in the midst of all that trial, in the comfort, he gained a glimpse of heaven, of how things would someday be reunited with joyful laughter. It can be hard for me to make sense sometimes of the difficulties that I face in life. Sometimes I ask myself, what did I do wrong to deserve this? What if instead of focusing on the difficulties that I face, I look to the Savior who sustains me in the midst of them? Like Peter stepping out into the waves, what if I fix my eyes on Jesus instead of the storms all around me? I think we can learn something about Jesus from Job's example. Job is like Jesus in that in both cases the innocent stands accused. If you think about Job and the divine counsel and you think about Jesus and the Sanhedrin, Job's flesh was tormented. Jesus was beaten and scourged. Job interceded for his children, praying for them during their feasts and seeking to offer atonement in case they had sinned even in their hearts. Jesus came on a mission to bring God's wayward children back into direct relationship with God. And while Job experienced the loss of everything that he held dear, for Jesus it was more. 
He gave up not only his health and his possessions, but his very life. It is by his wounds that we are healed. And because of his love that our brokenness is ultimately redeemed. Thanks be to God for a Savior who loves us so and transforms all of our burdens through his living sacrifice in exchange for blessings. As Gustavo Gutierrez noted, the world of retribution, the world that Job would have known and the world of the Hebrew Bible, not of temporal retribution only, is not where God dwells. At most, God visits it. The Lord is not a prisoner of the give to me and I will give to you mentality. Nothing, no human work, however valuable, merits grace. For if it did, grace would cease to be grace. This is the heart of the message of the book of Job. God's transforming grace is immeasurable, and it is available today. Will you pray with me? Loving God, thank you for inviting us to lay down our burdens at the cross. You took the sins of humanity on yourself and became a curse so that we might experience your blessing and know the blessing of praising your name. O Lord, like Job, we do not always fully understand your ways. Sometimes you answer us out of the whirlwind of life, and we get caught up in the gyrations of circumstance. So this morning, we want to be still, firmly rooted, and hear from you. We want to know what you're saying and what you want to share with us. Help us to be such friends as to listen and to encourage and find the best in others instead of believing the worst. To believe the very best in action and in our words. And to bring about a healing, we pray, in the lives of those around us, just as we pray for your healing in our life. We pray for all those things that are lost and broken, that you would mend them. Mend our hearts and grant comfort and healing and help us to mend any ways that are out of sync with your pattern and your plan. We give you thanks for never giving up on us. Grant us strength in the storm, perseverance in the pain, mercy in the maelstrom. We pray and give you thanks through Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yeah? Well, same to you, pal, huh? Get a life, huh? Jeez, unbelievable. The nerve of some of these people. I can't believe it. Guy cuts me off, then he takes my parking space. Unbelievable. Jeez. What are you doing? Whoa. Who said that? I did. You know, the big guy? King of kings, the prince of peace, wonderful counselor, the great I am. Perhaps you've heard of me. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Oh, wait a minute. That great I am? Yes, that's me. Now tell me, friend, what are you doing? And can you tell me about that load you are carrying? What load? Oh, this little thing? It's nothing, really. That doesn't seem so little to me. How do you determine what to keep? What is it that you collect? Well, you see, Mr. I am, I'm a collector. I collect and keep and catalog all the life's little challenges and difficulties. I keep them right here in my sack. You could say I'm a connoisseur of life's difficulties. And this, well, this sack is my cornucopia of concerns. And I bring it with me wherever I go. 
I see. So tell me, friend, do you care to show me what you have in your collection? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Let's see. Oh, jeez, that thing's heavy. Let's see. I've got some, uh, some bitterness. I've got some anger. Always get angry. What else do I have in here? Oh, yeah, sure. Problems. I mean, I got a lot of problems, all right? Big one of problems. Let's see. Now, somewhere in here, I've got uh, uh, some guilt and some shame and some, oh, disappointments. Yeah, see, there was this time back in April of 1986. I was in line for this big job, you know, this big promotion. Did I get it? No, they gave it to the other guy, and he wasn't even qualified. I, I mean, think that I've heard enough. Are you the only one collecting these things? Uh, gee, no, I don't think so. Most everybody I know seems to have a worry or a concern or two. Wait, let me ask. Anybody here with a concern or a problem? <laughs> Just as I suspected, sir, most do. Yeah. It makes me very sad that everyone holds on to these worries and concerns. Do you know what I call these things you're carrying around? No. What? I call them burdens. These burdens are weighing you down. Burdens, huh? They are kind of heavy. So let me start with you. Why don't you give them to me? What? I said give them to me. I will ease your burden. Uh, hang on just a minute. I've had a lot of these for a very long time, and I'm not just, I've grown very fond of these. I'm not going to give them up just because you, you know, Give them in. to me. Surrender your heavy load. Those burdens are weighing you down. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? My wish for you is to live a full and abundant life through a relationship with me. You cannot fulfill my promise when you are lugging around those burdens. Do you really enjoy lugging around all that weight? Give them to me. A full and abundant life, huh? That sounds pretty good. You would do that for me, but, but how? I paid that price a long time ago. Well, I, I suppose I could give up a couple of them. No, I said, <laughs> give them all to me. Every care and every worry. All right, well, just where am I supposed to put them? Lay them here, at the foot of my cross. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.